2: This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalbethanchil. People receive life-altering diagnoses every day. Today, we talk to parents and providers about children who've been diagnosed with diabetes. There are two kinds of diabetes, type 1, formerly known as juvenile diabetes, and type 2. Coming up, we'll hear from the local chapter of JDRF, the global organization dedicated to funding type 1 diabetes research. And we'll zoom in on Connecticut to learn about the disparities that exist in our communities. Data Haven will join us. We'll also talk to a doctor about the advances in treatment for diabetes. Now, this month marks the 100th anniversary of the discovery of insulin to treat diabetes. Today, it's one of the most expensive drugs, affecting millions of Americans. We'll also talk about recent changes in law, both in Connecticut and federally, to help diabetics. That's coming up first joining us are two connecticut residents a mother and daughter marie snow joins us on zoom she's a resident of killingworth
3: marie welcome to the show hi lucy thanks for having me on
2: and marie is joined by her daughter olive who was diagnosed with type 1 diabetes this summer olive thank you for coming on today
4: um thank you lucy
2: now I'll start with you, Marie. I had mentioned that Olive was first diagnosed with type one diabetes this summer. Can you talk about uh, the, the the events that um, led up to when you got that diagnosis?
3: Yeah, absolutely. Um, so Olive, uh, you know, it was during the 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 uh, height of the pandemic, where the kids were uh, going to school remotely or half half in school, half at half at home, and. The kids were tired, and Olive was particularly tired. And she would look at herself in the mirror and and comment on the dark circles under her eyes. <laughs> and she would um, she was losing weight, but eating a lot, and she was constantly tired and constantly drinking water. Um, so in hindsight, these are the signs that um, you know that. We we could we should have known, but we didn't. We didn't know the signs for diabetes, but she was always thirsty. And then the week before her diagnosis, she got sick and was throwing up um, a ton of water and drinking a ton of water until she was so dehydrated, we had to bring her to the, to the emergency room. Um, and that's where we got our diagnosis. Mm.
2: That must've been really scary to not know, you know, what's wrong with your child. And so uh, when you went to the emergency room, um, how soon before they told you that, um, that Olive uh, may have type one diabetes?
3: It was almost uh, immediate because they uh, checked her urine and found uh, extremely high levels of sugar. Um, so they, they immediately um, detected something was wrong um, and it, we 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 were in denial for a while until it it really hit us that this was that this was the case. Mm.
2: That's a lot to process uh, at the time. And when we talk about type one diabetes, that's when our the pancreas stops producing insulin, and so uh, people with type one diabetes must constantly monitor blood sugar levels, either inject or infuse insulin through a pump, and then carefully balance. Uh, insulin doses with eating and activity throughout the day. And so when you got that diagnosis for Olive and thinking about what this means for her and the family, like, how do you get used to that change in routine? What went through your mind when the doctors told you about uh, steps to to treat her?
3: Uh, I I, I don't know. I can't remember how what was going through my mind at the time, other than, oh, my gosh, our life is going to change forever. Um, And it it was only until recently that we're realizing how um, how diabetes can just be something that's there you know in the background and not constantly in the forefront of our lives um, but for for a while it was it was taking over everything and I I thought I would have to change so many things but in in reality um, you know you, you you adapt and you find ways to you find your new normal and this is the expression that all the the people around us kept saying you know you'll you'll find your new normal and and we are mm-hmm.
2: Uh, again you're hearing Marie Snow, she's a resident of Killingworth. Uh, her daughter Olive was diagnosed with type 1 diabetes uh, this summer. We're talking about uh, diabetes in uh, children and young people. You can join us 888-720-9677 or find us on Facebook and Twitter at where we live. Olive is sitting right next to you. Olive uh, can you tell us about that time when you had to go to the hospital and when um, you were told you had diabetes? Uh, tell us how you and your family probably Process this and you know how this has changed your life
4: well I obviously before I had to have insulin injections which was really hard for me the first time I had it um I didn't I wasn't really comfortable getting the shots and I didn't know what was going on and then I was able to go in the trial and I got a CGM and I got a pump and everything was great
2: Mm. So you mentioned uh, this trial. So, so Marie, fill in uh, that story for us. So, um, the the pump that that Olive uses, and how you monitor her blood gl- glucose levels.
3: Uh, yes, Olive uses a, a T slim pump, and it um, it's uh, it has the ability to predict her blood sugar levels, and so uh, and it speaks to a. a, a continuous glucose monitor that she has on her arm um and so it it tells us her blood sugar levels or if she's going to drop low or if she's going too high um so that we can you know that we can be smart and and proactive about about managing her her care
2: and you and mentioned all it felt- very
3: independent with it i'm sorry
2: Yeah, you mentioned she's independent. And that also you and your husband are getting notified. So this is interesting. We talk about advances in technology, this pump, you're able to get notified on your phones if her her blood glucose level is too high or too low.
3: That's right. It connects to an application that we both have on our phones. And um, unfortunately, my daughter Olive has to have her phone have we you know we wouldn't have given her a phone, um, but she she has one and it connects to our phone. So we're constantly able to monitor her blood sugar levels throughout the day, um, and we can connect with her to see what's going on if there's if there's something that doesn't look right. Uh, for the most part, we 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 kind of keep it in the background and don't uh, don't really bother her too much about it. But it's really comforting, especially as uh, parents of a newly diagnosed uh, child to be able to monitor from anywhere uh, while we're at work and she's at school, we we that was a a huge comfort for us.
2: And again, you mentioned this trial that uh, allows uh, Olive to have this uh, insulin pump. Um, if you were not involved in the trial, how would you then treat her her diabetes? Would it be a, an a manual injection?
3: Um. It would be uh, for a while, depending on insurance coverage of pumps. Um, you know, that's not something that I have looked into. We were fortunate enough to be um, asked to be part of this trial at uh, at the beginning of Olive's diagnosis, which is which was one of the requirements of this trial. Um, so we did do uh, in- insulin injections with a pen for a few weeks. Um, And I was thinking that was something that we would have to do for a few months uh, until we were able to uh, get a pump, which is something that Olive was very interested in. Mm
2: Uh, Marie, earlier you mentioned the new normal, and so I'm wondering if you can talk through uh, what you mean by that. In the sense of, you know, Olive is a, a very active child. I understand plays several sports. And um, when you got this diagnosis, and people around you found out that Olive now has diabetes, did you hear from more people in the community that actually I have someone in my family with diabetes? What was the the, the feedback like from people was, that you know?
3: It was immediate, Lucy. It was. All around us, people were showing up and, and sharing their stories um, of family members who have type 1 diabetes. Uh, even our local pharmacists, both of his sons have type 1 diabetes. Um, and I never I never knew I've been living in this town for over 15 years. Um, and, you know, stories of support and and, you know, offers for help or any kind of resources that we needed. Um, some of my students. Uh, um and their parents came uh, forward with support and help. And it was, it was just amazing to see how many, how many uh, people around me were affected by type 1 diabetes. Mm-hmm.
2: Olive, I wanted to go back to you because you said now with the pump, things are great. And so I'm wondering if you can talk through um, how um, you're still doing uh, many activities and, and sports and also how you work with your mom um, when you think about making uh, uh, meal choices like for lunch or dinner.
4: Well, we mostly go with the things that aren't with high sugar.
2: And so when you think about lunch, what's a typical lunch for that your mom will will help make you for you?
4: Well, like nuts, um, like a, a typical ham and cheese sandwich, uh, pasta, things that are like low carb and stuff. <laughs>
3: <laughs> Marie, did you want to add to that? <laughs> Well, yeah. I mean, we we do tend to stay away from high sugar foods, um, but we haven't really, and that's not something that we ate before her her diagnosis. So we haven't really changed our eating habits at all. It's just the counting of carbs. Now I constantly read labels, see how many carbs are in any food that we that we make. If I make a big one pot dish, I, you know, I have to weigh and divide the the whole meal to see how many carbs are per serving. So it's a few extra steps. On the other hand, um, it, you know, it's a great learning experience about, you know, what we eat and how we eat. And Olive is a a big part of the planning of her lunches and her breakfast. So that's, that's nice that she's involved in, in her own, in her own meals. I label all the things that she has in her lunchbox with the number of carbs. So I'll just put a, like a sticker of and and the number of carbs, so she puts that in at lunchtime in her in her pump, um, and it's it's now it's just part of the routine. It used to be daunting, but now it's just something that we do uh, pretty easily.
2: And Olive, I mentioned you play. I think several sports, so lacrosse. And your mom told us that you started taekwondo and also basketball. But what's it like now in school? Do your friends understand uh, the, that you have diabetes and you have to be careful about about what you're about what you're eating and your activities at times?
4: Yeah. And um, what they are the, actually... What no. are their questions? Um, they actually don't really mind my diabetes. They think it's like, not really a big problem.
2: And so what do you want people to know um, that might have children who are like you, uh, that may have diabetes? Uh, What do you want them to know about how you and your family have approached this?
4: Um, don't really know.
2: (laughs) Marie, did you want to add?
3: Um, that, you know, that life goes on and. Um, that you move forward and you meet new people and you learn new information and you just discover another side of yourself um, that you didn't know existed. I think that that's a, a, a pretty plain way to, to put it. You, it, it's, it has transformed our whole family in a way that I never imagined you know, could, could be possible mm-hmm. um, in, 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 in really good ways.
2: And what about the support that your family is receiving? Does Olive have someone to talk to besides uh, uh, her family members uh, about uh, this, this new diagnosis?
3: Yeah. Olive has a really awesome therapist um, that she speaks uh, to every, every week and um, every Monday. Yeah. And she (laughs) really enjoys uh, having that outlet Um, and a lot of her, her medical team around her are people who not only are experts, but all are also type one themselves. Um, and they have just a a personal connection and a, and a special bond because of that. Mm
2: -hmm. Well, I want to thank you and Olive for coming on today to tell us a little bit about your family's story around type one diabetes. Olive, it was a pleasure to hear from you. Thank you for talking with us today.
3: You're welcome. Thanks so much for having us on Lucy.
2: That's Marie Snow and Olive Snow. They live in Killingworth, Connecticut. This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Coming up, we talk to a pediatric diabetes specialist about treatment options and learn the status of insulin caps in our state and on the federal level. Also, a member of the Connecticut chapter of JDRF, a global diabetes research funding organization, will join us. You can join us, too. Do you have a family member with diabetes? Or do you have questions about diabetes in young people? 888-720-9677. Or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. We just heard from a Connecticut mother and daughter about her daughter's recent type 1 diabetes diagnosis. About 1.6 million Americans have type 1 diabetes. This is where the immune system attacks the insulin-producing cells in the pancreas, leaving the body with little or no insulin. In type 2 diabetes, the pancreas is able to make insulin, but the body is insulin-resistant. And both types of diabetes require patients to rely on insulin medication. Now coming up, we're going to talk about disparities in the disease and what researchers know about the growing prevalence of type 1 diabetes in young people. I wanted to take a a quick call. Representative Brandon McGee is calling in uh, from Hartford. Uh, Hello, Representative McGee. Can you hear us? Oh, it looks like he was on hold for too long. Um, Maybe who wants to call back? uh, Again, the number to join us, 888-720-9677, or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Joining us now on Zoom is Dr. Jennifer Schur. She's Associate Professor of Pediatric Endocrinology at Yale School of Medicine and a Pediatric Endocrinologist at Yale Medicine. Dr. Schur, welcome
0: to our show. Thanks so much, Lucy. Happy to be here.
2: I wanted to ask you first about this CDC report um, that shows that type 1 diabetes is growing sharply in African American and Hispanic youth populations. That's between 2002 and 2015. Also, uh, type 1 cases among African American children and Hispanic children increasing by 20% compared to 14% among white children. And the reasons behind this, no one really knows why. So I'm wondering if you can talk through what you're seeing as a pediatric endocrinologist.
0: Yeah, so I I think you make great points there. You know, we definitely are seeing increased prevalence of type one diabetes. But in terms of the factors that are implicated in it, you know, much remains unknown. We know that this is a polygenic condition, meaning that there is genetic factors along with environmental risks. But we continue to learn more about what leads someone to develop type one diabetes. Now we can actually see in those at high risk due to a family member with type 1, um, whether or not somebody has something called an autoantibody that can indicate that that person is at higher risk to go on and develop type 1. So we definitely know that we're seeing increased numbers, um, but I think we still have to do a lot of research as to why and what we can do to um, stop this whole development.
2: I understand you're involved at Yale with ChildNet. That's the consortium involved in cutting-end research to prevent type 1 diabetes, also to slow the progression for people that have this diagnosis
0: already. Can you tell us more? Yeah, so I think that the work with TrialNet is really intriguing. What that consortium has been doing for over 15 years is looking at how do we predict who's going to go on and develop diabetes. So you can take individuals who have either a first or second degree relative with type 1 diabetes, and you can send autoantibodies. And what we know is if somebody has one or more autoantibodies um, that we can measure, we understand that they're two year or their five year risk to going on and developing type one diabetes is going to be 35 to 50% of that population. In addition to that, if somebody has one or more antibodies and also shows some signs of higher glucose levels, their two year risk of developing type one diabetes is 60% and their five year risk is 80%. So these individuals who show these biomarkers, we know they're gonna develop the condition, it's just a matter of when. And we're now seeking a number of therapies to go ahead and stop that progression from these biomarkers being present to actually requiring insulin therapy.
2: Let's talk more about these therapies, as you mentioned. We're talking to you on the 100th anniversary this month of the discovery of insulin. And I had said earlier, when people have either type one or type two, the treatment is uh, insulin, whether daily injections or um, having certain pumps that can uh, input this as well. Um, So I'm just wondering if you can talk through when we think about uh, how insulin helps diabetics and um, what they're seeing in terms of their blood glucose control levels.
0: Yeah, and so I think it's important to just look back in terms of where we've come from to understand how far we've gotten with technological advancements. So, you know, back in 1979, we first published on insulin pump therapy and the ability to wear this huge blue brick that provided more physiologic insulin delivery. And it was led by Dr. William Chamberlain, who's the chief of pediatric endocrinology here at Yale. Over the years, we've then seen the development of continuous glucose monitors, which are prior guests were speaking about. And that allows us to view real-time data of glucose levels. So instead of seeing four points per day, we're now seeing 288 readings a day. I always tell families when I talk about this technology, It's like Dorothy going from Kansas and showing up in Oz and seeing Technicolor. All of a sudden, things have dimension, and you can understand what's happening with your body. Now, layer upon that the ability to have these pumps and these sensors communicate with each other and adjust some of the background insulin needs. And we've been involved in those studies for years upon years with the first commercial system hitting the market in 2016 and while that system was great it had a lot of areas that could require improvement and so our group has actively been working on these new technologies that the goal is to more closely match physiologic insulin needs and reduce the burden to somebody living with type one so things will be adjusted more on their own and ultimately the goal is to have what we would call a full closed loop system where a user could just wear the devices and not even need to put any inputs um, to go ahead and indicate hey i'm eating or i'm going to be doing activity things that are still required today and i do want to recognize because i know jdrf is on that they have been instrumental in the development of each of these components and continue the progression to see us really change how we care for diabetes.
2: Before we hear from JDRF, I'm wondering if you can talk about some of the other advances. Uh, We heard earlier um, the uh, Olive who uses a type of pump and they have to change the uh, area of injection uh, and make sure they watch for infection. But there's also something called an OmniPod, which is a tubeless insulin pump. But can you talk about that? And you know, when we think about access to care, I mean, how many people can have one of these, uh, Doctor Sher?
0: Yeah, so um, there's lots of different pumps out there, the Omnipod is a pump that uh, is tubeless. And we're currently working on the studies to allow for an automated insulin delivery system similar to what your prior guest had, where the sensor and the pump are speaking to each other. And in terms of, you know, what we would like as a provider, and I think that the whole sentiment of our group is that everybody should be afforded the most advanced technology that that they would like to use. And so with that I think our goal is to make sure we speak about technologies, we educate families and help them along the path of what's available. And for years you know it had previously been talked about well who can have these technologies? And older consensus guidelines would say, well, the ideal candidate is. And more recently, this past May, I co-chaired the American Association of Clinical Endocrinologies updates on advanced diabetes technology. And what we said is there's no ideal candidate A person with diabetes who is insulin requiring deserves access to this technology and so we're really you know going ahead and trying to push the limits to say it's not a specific type or set of characteristics the characteristic is i'm insulin requiring i deserve these technologies they will improve my glycemia they will improve my life and my role is to Talk to my patients about it, and then really fight with insurance companies to get coverage.
2: That was my next question, Dr. Sure. the fight with insurance companies to get coverage. And so what is typically approved for someone who has private insurance? Or does it just depend on the plan? If someone like a child has diabetes, how quickly can a family be um, able to maybe have the pump uh, to help with their blood glucose levels?
0: Yeah, that's a great question. And so it varies so much plan to plan. I will say we are pretty successful with kids. So I have youth who are diagnosed and within a month I have them on an insulin pump. In other situations, we have some antiquated policies with some of these insurers that state that you need to have diabetes for six months before we would approve this technology. And I've written some strongly worded letters and I've also had some very frank conversations. You know reminding these uh, insurance companies that this is a chronic medical condition. It's not going to change six months from now. And all we're doing is making it harder as a child and a family adjust to a new diagnosis. And I think through advocacy work done both by persons with diabetes, providers, and then advocacy groups like JDRF and ADA, I'm very hopeful we can change the mindset and recognize that everybody deserves access to this technology.
2: You're hearing on Zoom here on Where We Live, Dr. Jennifer Schur, Associate Professor of Pediatric Endocrinology at Yale School of Medicine. She's a pediatric endocrinologist at Yale Medicine. As we talk about uh, type 1 diabetes, also type 2 diabetes among young people, you can join us, 888-720-9677, or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Uh, we've mentioned JDRF. Joining us now is John Muskrat, Executive Director of the Connecticut and Western Massachusetts Chapter of JDRF. This is an organization um, that really leads when it comes to funding research for type one diabetes. John, welcome to the show.
1: Good Morning, Lucy. Thank you for having me.
2: So tell us more about JDRF's role in access to care when we think about just the the technologies that are now available to help uh, families of people that have diabetes, uh, um, you know, have good outcomes.
1: Right. So, GDF is really involved sort of in every aspect along the pipeline for those technologies. Uh, We fund a lot of the basic research at places like Yale and other institutions around the world. Uh, We work with insurance providers, we work with regulators, you know, really kind of measuring success um, that the technologies that we're talking about need to be accessible into the hands of patients to impact their lives. So, as an organization, we're really involved in every step along that pipeline.
2: And so, talk with us about some of the, the policy also that um, has been passed that help uh, patients, uh, you know, handle the high costs of their care uh, and treatment for diabetes. What's happening in Connecticut on the federal level?
1: Sure, insulin pricing. You know, as you know, the the cost of insulin has skyrocketed, and um, it is really just an incredibly uh, critical issue facing the diabetes diabetes community. Um, You know, in JDRF, obviously, we really believe that insulin should be available at reasonable, predictable, out-of-pocket costs. Here in Connecticut, uh, the state passed a $25 per 30-day supply cap for those who are on state-regulated commercial health insurance. Um, That'll take effect in January. Uh, They also included in that bill uh, capping supplies at $100 per 30-day supply. Um, So Connecticut um, really is playing a leading role in that. Um, cost control of insulin. On the federal level, uh, recently we were encouraged that Congress has included a $35 per month out-of-pocket cost cap on insulin in the Build Back Better bill that's um, working its way through Congress right now. So, And that would really represent a substantial savings for people with diabetes and one of the most significant steps taken by the federal government to date to lower the cost of insulin.
2: Well, that's good to hear. Earlier, I had talked uh, to uh, Dr. Scherr about you know this the rates overall of type one and type two diabetes going up among youth under twenty. And so, what can you tell us from JDRF's perspective of uh, you know this this troubling numbers and also you know just how outreach and awareness is important here.
1: Absolutely, you know I think outreach um, to that newly diagnosed community is critical. Certainly during uh, the pandemic when everything was virtual and, you know, we missed out on a lot of those in-person connections, uh, whether they're support groups and meetups, it became even more of a challenge, but um, you know, we nearly 1.6 million Americans have type one diabetes right now. That's up about 30% from 2017. And as you mentioned earlier, especially among youth, it's uh, increasing about 20% for African-American children and Hispanic children as well. So, uh, you know, As an organization, sort of our support outreach efforts, you know, have really intensified trying to um, engage those communities, bring them in to feel the support of the network and also give them access to resources and other things that can help managing this disease a little bit easier for them.
2: You can join our conversation as we talk about diabetes among children and young people, the number 888-720-9677, or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Representative McGee, I think, uh, is uh, calling now. Uh, Representative McGee, can you hear me?
6: I can hear you loud and clear, Lucy. Can you hear me?
2: Yes, wonderful. Thank you for calling back. What did you want to share?
6: Yeah, no, first of all, Lucy, thank you so much uh, for all the great work that you do. Uh, and today is especially uh, special to me uh, in that your your first two guests uh, really just hit home. Um, as a person who was diagnosed with diabetes a little over seven years ago, type 2 diabetes, um, it took me a little while to accept the fact that I was a diabetic uh, and I had to embrace uh, a new normalcy. Uh, and if Molly is still listening, uh, I want her to to know that even adults still struggle with, you know, trying to manage your glucose readings and and better understand um, this, this, you know, disease or what have you. And and for me, I am just so thankful uh, that we were able to, um, uh, as my niece would say, catch it before it caught me. Um, I was hospitalized for about two weeks. Um, and this was, again, seven years ago, and I've since been able to adjust and change my diet. I'm now a vegan and, you know, still struggling in, in, in ways that um, I am sharing with people more as I get older in hopes uh, to help people um, be okay with, with what you have, but understanding your numbers, your numbers. It's very, very important. Uh, So, again, thank you, Lucy, uh, for all of the experts that you have on. Thank you for this information, uh, and I'll continue to listen in.
2: Well, thank you for, for calling in Representative McGee and sharing part of your story. Before you go, though, I have to ask because you also are a law state lawmaker um, doing work on behalf of your constituents. Uh, we just heard John Muskrat talk about Connecticut mandating insurance coverage for diabetes, also an insulin pricing bill that will take effect in January of 2022, which is going to limit insulin co-payments to $25. That's huge for people. And I'm wondering when you think about the community you represent other ways that the state can help uh, people with this diabetes diagnosis?
6: Yeah, you know, and and I appreciate that question. Um, I am very uh, pleased to say that the state of Connecticut, I I believe we're moving toward uh, the right direction uh, when you begin talking about access to health care for all people, especially our most vulnerable populations. Uh, the people I represent could benefit a great deal with this new mandate. Um, frankly, it should be free, uh, if you ask me. Um, it, I, am, I am in a very um, privileged space in that um, I have state insurance, right? And with state insurance, I'm pretty much covered. Uh, but there are others who suffer from type 1, type 2 diabetes, and unfortunately they don't have that same privilege or access uh, and so I think we're moving toward the right direction, but we need to take it a step further uh, and, and providing access to the proper care um, education and awareness, but import- most importantly, the medicine insulin that's needed to help uh, bring or stabilize, you know, your, your glucose numbers, your A1C, et cetera. Um, so, uh, but one of your speakers spoke a lot about the disparities that exist um, and it's true. In some communities, you know, we're struggling um, a great deal. Uh, and so my goal, my mission uh, is to continue telling my personal story uh, in hopes that people will take this a bit more seriously. And it's a silent killer. Um, I think you were, your first guest, they talked about it. It's not something that you always see. You feel it and you experience it, especially in men of color. Um, but you don't necessarily understand it. And and oftentimes you tend to try to avoid those signs that your body is telling you something is wrong. Uh, So um, yeah, I mean, I can talk on and on about it um, just from a personal experience, but again, I can't thank you enough, Lucy and all your guests.
2: Well, thank you, State Representative Brandon McGee, for calling in to the show. Uh, before I take another caller, David, stay with us. I just wanted to have Dr. Jennifer Scher respond to what Representative McGee shared about even his personal story with diabetes.
0: No, I I so um I'm I'm gonna just share myself. So I was diagnosed with type 1 diabetes in 1987, and I couldn't agree with you more that with the appropriate medications and access to therapy we can all do really well i've lived with diabetes for 34 years i was on purified pork insulin in 1987 that's all that was available Mm -hmm. and i've been amazed to watch the drastic improvements in the care that we can receive and how it's impacted my life and not just my life but the life of my kids who say i'm nicer when my glucose levels are more in range and my ability to concentrate and do my job and so i think that what his point that we have to just make sure that. Everybody is getting access and the ability to use the amazing medical um, products that have been developed because we can make it so that diabetes can fade a little bit more into the background. It's always going to be there. It's going to be a chronic condition, but I am living with diabetes. I am not a diabetic. I just happen to have this thing that I have to take care of, but I have the fortune of the tools needed, and I want to ensure everybody has that.
2: Thank you, Jennifer Schur, again, pediatric diabetes specialist at Yale Medicine, also associate professor. I want to take another call. David's calling in from Cheshire. David, go ahead.
7: Uh, good morning, Lucy, and good morning to all your guests. Uh, I practiced internal medicine and primarily gastroenterology in the Cheshire Wallingford Meriden uh, vicinity for the past 40 years, and I get to see the consequences of diabetes that's been neglected. Uh, primarily type one. Um, I don't, as not being an endocrinologist, I don't see a lot of type one. I see type two primarily. I misspoke there. Uh, and the the consequences are things that patients don't even really appreciate as such. the The coronary artery disease. The they hear about their kidneys. They hear about their eyes. They don't appreciate the vascular complications. And because these things are um, asymptomatic, uh, you've heard the term silent killer already, uh, they tend to be neglected. Uh, what's so short-sighted on them, a part of the insurance companies, is that they're the ones that are going to be paying for these consequences over the long run. And because they don't really have a longitudinal commitment to patients, they don't have any Um, any consequences themselves. Uh, The other point I wanted to make is that the socioeconomic barriers are huge. Everybody's a candidate, uh, but there are so many socioeconomic barriers, especially among the older population, among more disadvantaged groups, that even with the the benefit of of some of these remarkable uh, advancements, Uh, There are so many people that can't take advantage of them. Um, I have a third observation, but I'd be curious to hear what your guests have to say about uh, those.
2: Yes, thank you, David. Uh, Dr. Scher, we touched on this earlier, but did you want to respond to David?
0: So I I think uh, David made a number of great points, and I'm grateful for the care that you provide to your patients. I think that we are rewriting how diabetes type two diabetes particularly is being managed previously it had been with primarily um, insulin therapy but over the years we've seen new classes of medication come on board including sodium glucose co-transporter inhibitors and glucagon like peptide one receptor agonists and these therapies have now been found to in individuals with type 2 diabetes protect the kidneys and the heart and reduce risk of cardiovascular mortality, and also of um, renal outcomes. And so I agree, we need to be talking about these complications, and we need to use the right therapies, and we need to make sure that we are telling patients about these options. And we have seen in the American Diabetes Association, the recommendations of how we care for individuals change drastically. And so I am truly hopeful, the same way we have seen type 1 diabetes change in the past 20 years due to the treatments that are available, we will see the same whole true for type 2 diabetes. But again, it's through that change in consensus guidelines, you know, um, reports from groups highlighting that this in the end is economically beneficial to the healthcare system. But in my view, most importantly, the person with diabetes living with it. Um, so I think we're at the precipice of seeing dramatic changes occur.
2: You've been hearing Dr. Jennifer Schur, Associate Professor of Pediatric Endocrinology at Yale School of Medicine, also a pediatric endocrinologist at Yale Medicine. Thank you for your time today. We really appreciate
0: it. Thanks, Lucy.
2: This is Where We Live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nopithanchel. Coming up, we're going to talk more about the disparities in access to care uh, for uh, people of color who have diabetes. You can join us as well. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Thank you. This is Where We Live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy nall Today, we're talking about diabetes and youth. Disparities in blood glucose outcomes among ethnic and racial minorities persist, as reported in the Type 1 Diabetes Exchange Research Registry and also search study cohorts. And Where We Live obtained data from Connecticut Medicaid. To date, the Husky Health Medicaid program covers more than 408,000 children below the age of 20. That's this year. And this includes 1,156 children and youth for type one diabetes and 928 for type two. So what are some factors behind the numbers? Joining us now is Mark Abraham, executive director of Data Haven. Mark, welcome to the show. Hi, Lucy. So when we think about uh, disparities, and we heard earlier from Representative McGee, you know, cost of care being one of them. uh, I wanted to talk more about the survey that Data Haven uh, did, a well-being survey. When we think about uh, type 2 diabetes that can be delayed or prevented through exercise and healthy eating, but that also means access to healthy food. And so looking at the survey, what does this look like in lower-income communities like Hartford, New Haven, and Bridgeport?
5: Yeah, good, good question. Before I get into the data, I just want to mention, you know, you have to consider the resourcefulness of families when they're looking for food. So you think if families are paying 80% of their income towards rent, which is common. How do they find food? Also, I think of an example of a 16-year-old who works after school until midnight to support their family with rent. And it's just too late to come home at midnight and cook dinner um, when, you know, several people are sleeping in their living room and kitchen. So they find that the one fast food restaurant that's open. And, and you have to think about this sort of uh, work that people do to eat health, to eat food. And, you know, before you necessarily think of like whether they have access to healthy food or not, just thinking of the resilience that families have and, and thinking of those ways that we could improve health. Um, but when we look at the data, we definitely see disparities. I mean, the clearest, the other callers mentioned socioeconomic disparities and places, both matter. So places like our city centers, in some cases, you see 10 times higher rates of uh, diabetes-related amputation, which is sort of like one of the worst outcomes of diabetes. And that could be traced back to both the higher risks of those areas and income and things like that, but also barriers to health care. Um, on, the, on the environmental challenges, though, some of the ones that we see in our survey include um, higher uh, concerns about gun violence in the 2021 survey we're working on now, we found 52% of Hartford residents are concerned that someone and their family will be injured by gun violence, and 14% have actually just witnessed a shooting within the past 12 months in Hartford. And that's, you know, that could be 10 times or 20 times higher than the rates in the rest of Connecticut. So things like gun violence, obviously, we could talk about access to parks and recreational areas and just access to food in general, which is, um, you know, closely linked to like not having a car, not having supermarkets in your neighborhood.
2: Let's talk about access uh, to the outdoors in this well-being survey by Data Haven. 13 percent of residents in Connecticut city centers compared to 46 percent in the suburbs felt that parks and recreational facilities in their area were excellent. And so can we talk about that, that lack of access uh, to recreational spaces uh, like parks and how that impacts at uh, children?
5: Right. Yeah. If if you're. In an area where it's difficult to walk places, um, it could be due to the hills, like in places like Waterbury, very steep hills. It could be the parks are in poor condition. Even if you have uh, parks in your area, it doesn't mean that your parents will you know, are comfortable letting you access those due to the other concerns I mentioned. So those are major challenges. And and if you look at the disparities between um Places like uh, Waterbury and Hartford and and the wealthy suburbs they are just much more extreme than you see with, you know, other kind of disparities we think about in the state. So it does call for, you know, attention to the built environment. There is research showing, you know, improving the built environment makes people more comfortable going outside and meeting neighbors and exercising.
2: What do we know about uh, patient navigators that are in communities to even talk about diabetes risk and awareness? Uh, What do we know, Mark?
5: Yeah. So there are large disparities in access to care. And, you know, I think some of the other callers talked about that, but one is that is important is lack of health insurance. And, you know, if we look at who doesn't have health insurance and then who's not being uh, say vaccinated for COVID or visiting doctors or accessing telehealth, there's a clear connection there. So you would imagine that, you know, parents and and families that don't have uh, good health insurance or don't have health insurance in all in, at all in many cases are just not able to access the types of um, preventive treatment that would, uh, you know, reduce the risks of diabetes or prevent it from happening in the first place. Mm.
2: John Muskrat is still with us, executive director of the, the JDRF. Um, again, this is the local but Connecticut and Western Massachusetts chapter. John, do you have anything to add to that question We think about raising awareness and um, access to care in communities where there are disparities?
1: Yeah, I think one other um, important point kind of connected to what some of the earlier guys talked about is um, access to clinical trials. Uh, Participating in a clinical trial is a lot of people's way to be able to benefit from some of the latest technology or that might be out there. But too often, clinical trials have lacked diversity. Um, So, you know, we've worked to develop a clinical trial locator, a simple tool on our website where anyone can find a clinical trial in their area they can participate in. Uh, and also have kind of built out a volunteer network throughout our chapters to try to encourage participation in clinical trials as a way to drive access to some of the latest care technology that might be out there.
2: Mm-hmm. Earlier, I asked Dr. Schur about uh, technology that can help improve compliance to keep these uh, blood glucose levels in a normal range and, and help people. Um, when we think about Connecticut Medicaid, you know, do, the, do we know if it covers this kind of technology like the Omnipod, for instance, John?
1: Uh, yes, Medicare programs do cover um, CGMs. Uh, that they, you know, the the data is very clear in sort of their benefit in managing type one. So those insurance programs have uh, covered them.
2: And then we think about some other ways to bridge the gaps to access. Uh, John, some uh, last uh, words on that uh, as we look at what's happening here in our state.
1: Yeah, I think you know, kind of in closing or summary, I think you know, as, as from your previous guests have said the the access, the 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 care, the technology, and uh, the treatments and therapies that are there to manage type one diabetes have really made huge advances, but without access to those. Uh, people aren't benefiting. So, you know, our mission is really to try to bring those awareness, bring those resources to these communities to make sure they're aware of them while at the same time advocating both state and federally for better insurance coverage, um, better uh, options, uh, cost options for people with no insurance or underinsurance so they can benefit from some of these uh, technologies that have really revolutionized the way diabetes can be managed. Mm.
2: Um, we're almost out of time. I just wanted to bring up uh, someone called in earlier, um, someone who has type 1 diabetes, uh, talking about the insulin prices that have skyrocketed in this country, a lot of frustration with insurance companies, but also drug manufacturers, John, and the prices that uh, they set for something like insulin. That sounds like a whole nother show, but an important point to mention We think about what insulin costs in other countries, John.
6: Right. Yeah, and just you
1: know, an additional point on that, it, it's all—it's more than just insulin pricing as well. It's the supplies that go along with it, and I, I hear from plenty of people who have great commercial insurance or private insurance who are still paying hundreds and hundreds of dollars a month for supplies um, that go along with their care. So. It is, uh, it is a complex issue, but one that um, you know, we're committed to. I, I agree with your previous guest. Insulin is a, is a basic right for people that need it to live, and it should be affordable and accessible to all.
2: That's John Muskrat, executive director of the JDRF local chapter. Thank you, John. Also, Mark Abraham was here, executive director of Data Haven. We'll be sure to tweet out links to Data Haven's well-being survey. That's at where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanshal. Today's show produced by Sujata Srinivasan. We'll be back tomorrow.